Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the least of these and why the song Godless by Danzig absolutely rocks. Easter is here, I think I want to start with a question that some of you may not know the answer to. What does it mean when Christians say they're giving something up for Lent? It's a fair question. It really goes back to before medieval times, the idea being that the austerity of preparing for uh, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, calls for a certain giving up taking things which are luxuries, taking things which may not be good for us, and letting them go through what might be a process that's the equivalent of Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness, which actually happened right at the beginning of his earthly ministry. The truth is, I've never been all that interested in the idea of giving something up for Lent. And as a Protestant Christian, I don't have a whole lot of authority figures standing over me, shaking their head about that or wagging a finger in my direction. Instead, what I've done in the past has tended to be taking on an undertaking, seeing if there's some other means of focusing on my need to recognize a force higher than myself and committing to the discipline of doing certain things over a 40-plus day span of time. And the undertaking, as often as not, has been related to writing. For many years, early in my Christian faith, I considered myself to be an aspiring writer, or perhaps a future writer, and it became clear at one point in time that I really kind of needed to make a decision. Was I going to be an author, or was I not? And so for a few years in a row, I engaged in what I used to call temptations from the wilderness. I realize that's a really, really corny title, but temptations from the wilderness were essentially Lenten writing experiments. One of them, in an effort to try to conform my style from the more wide-open commentary approach to editorializing. Trying to get into that small two, three, four paragraph editorial block form of writing, opinion pieces and opinion columns, I actually took 40 days and said, hey, you know what? Every day over a 40-day span during the season of Lent, I'm going to write a different opinion piece on a different topic and keep that thing to a single double-spaced page of paper using standard margin sizes. I wasn't always successful. In many ways, Lent is all about coming face-to-face with the idea that you're not always going to be successful, that you personally don't have enough steam on your own to get things done. The year after that, or a couple years after that, I did a totally different um, temptations from the wilderness idea. Same concept in terms of doing an undertaking in a writing style, but in this case, I wanted to write one single seamless work. Was it going to be big enough to be a novel? No. But it was certainly big enough to be a novella. I divided it up into chapters, and the goal was 40 days, 40 writing styles, 40 completely different approaches to fiction. And by 40 writing styles, I mean 40 completely different writing styles. A little bit of first person some third-person narrative, some second-person, some snippets of dialogue, all the sort of things that you might expect from traditional fiction. But it also included recipes, grocery lists, um, everything you could imagine. 
it's not as easy as you might think if you pulled out a piece of paper or opened up a, a Word document and tried to type 40 completely different and unique forms of writing. The minutes of a meeting, for example, would be one. You know, things as, as obscure as that. But some of the works were not as small as like a, a grocery list, shopping list might be. Some of them had a significant amount of, of kind of length to them. And one of them is the one I want to kind of actually read to you today. I want to read it, and then I want to comment to it. It doesn't particularly have a title, because the work itself had its own title, um, which I kind of cheekily decided to call it Some Assembly Required, since it was made up of bits and pieces, with a parenthetical, a neo-surrealist forsaking a habit for Lint. But within Some Assembly Required, I'm just going to focus on one little passage that I tend to give the title to the least of these. Now, I'm just going to dive in here in a second, but I want to kind of give you a little feel for it so you can see where, where the story picks up. This writing style is a sermon. So right before the part I'm going to start with is actually a hymn. So if you're looking at this from the perspective of a church bulletin for a worship service, the hymn that preceded the piece I'm going to begin with was an old, um, really a, a classic, I would say, They're, They'll Know We Are Christians By Our Love kind of became popular as kind of a campfire hymn in the 70s. Uh, They'll Know We Are Christians by Our Love by Peter Schultes. Where I'm going to begin reading, though, is with the scripture. I'm going to share the scripture readings, and then I'm going to go right into the sermon. The sermon itself is called The Least of These. The fictional pastor is called Dr. Calvin Hunter. So let's dive in. First scripture reading is Ezekiel, chapter 34, verse 17. Now then, my flock, I, the Sovereign Lord, tell you that I will judge each of you and separate the good from the bad, the sheep from the goats. Our second scripture reading is Luke, chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. What does he do? He leaves the other ninety-nine sheep in the pasture and goes looking for the one that got lost until he finds it. When he finds it, he is so happy that he puts it on his shoulders and carries it back home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says to them, I am so happy I have found my lost sheep. Let us celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine respectable people who do not need to repent. Right up front, I want to thank God for the musical blessings we have received today, particularly the secular song by Steve and Jerome. It's blessing enough that our youth should be so talented. Their desire to share these gifts is worth even more. I mention their song because I think the words that um, uh, the words that Stephanie Davis wrote for, I believe, Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks says uh, quite a bit about our ministry today. Here, let me let me quote the song. Lord, please shine a light of hope on those of us who fall behind. And when we stumble in the snow, will you help us up while there's still time? The answer to this question is contained in the gospel reading today from Luke. Not only will the Lord help up those of us who get lost along the way, but he rejoices at doing so. Jesus and Paul after him constantly emphasized to his disciples that worrying about the mundane and the ethereal was not desirable. Jesus taught that God would provide our needs both in this life and afterward. Instead, he wanted his followers to devote their attention solely to the ministry. In this regard, there is a calling. Yes, on the one hand, 
God will provide for us in our hour of need. On the other hand, he expects us to do likewise for our fellow man. The character in that song promised the bankrupt family he would check on them when he got into town. Jesus' parable implies that it is incumbent upon the shepherd to seek out the lost sheep. For Jesus, this is obvious. It's a plain and simple fact of being a shepherd. How strongly does the Lord feel about this matter? Well, to answer questions about the judgment of God, we need only ask ourselves what will happen to those who do not heed his word. Ezekiel faced questions exactly like this. And God revealed the answer to him. At the day of judgment, the sheep will be separated from the goats. Jesus further defined the difference between a good sheep and a bad goat before his betrayal in Matthew's Gospel. Reading here from chapter 25 and starting with verse 31, this is Jesus speaking. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, O blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, and feed thee, or thirsty, and give thee drink? And when did we see thee a stranger, and welcome thee, or naked, and clothe thee? And when did we see thee sick, or in prison, and visit thee? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see thee hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we did not minister to thee? Then he will answer to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Biblical historians refer to Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, as the great judgment. Jesus tells us that we will be judged by our willingness to help our fellow man. Not only those who have fallen in the snow, like our song today, but the hungry and thirsty, the stranger and shelterless, the sick and imprisoned. An often ignored element of the great judgment is the emphasis on the least. In, the, in this example, Jesus enunciates his, his expectation that we help even the least of his brethren. Now, just prior to the new school year, two of our women's circles attended a conference in Kansas City dealing with urban violence. I met with them afterward, 
In the midst of workshops on gang violence, domestic violence, street drug-inspired violence, etc., 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 a common element had emerged. Hatred. Hatred. Our women came back with a strong sense that our society's problems aren't getting too large to handle. No, they already are too large to handle. There is nothing I can say this morning, and there was nothing a hotel full of speakers could say last summer to make the gang problem disappear. There is, on the other hand, a great many simple and easy tasks each and every one of us can handle morning, noon, and night. There is a great deal we can do to tackle the root cause of all evils. Hatred. Easier said than done, right? I understand that reaction. It is easy to say that we are going to start loving and forgiving one another. However, it can be quite a leap for most groups, even most religious groups, to accomplish. I know this because we asked. Come on up here, Hannah. I want to come on up here. I want to introduce you all to Hannah Strom. For any among the congregation who don't know Hannah, she is an officer in the Ruth Circle here at the church. After meeting with her group, we decided that we could learn a great deal by conducting a simple survey. Our goal was to contact a variety of groups, most of which identified themselves with a mandate from God. So let me turn it over to Hannah. Hannah, it's all yours. Thank you, Reverend. We asked a variety of questions, most of which asked for a name or an identification of a person the respondent most wished were dead, transformed, or had never been born. We wanted to know who they thought was the most reprehensible person alive and how strongly they desired the elimination of that individual. Of course, we had hoped the most, that most groups would stop short of setting up a hit list, but we were disappointed. The following groups identified the following individuals as being, well, more or less unworthy of forgiveness. Here's the list. Pro-Life Action Committee, Dr. Ross Shelton. Anti-Defamation League, Nation of Islam. NAACP, David Duke. Act Up, uh, it's a gay rights group. Um, the Reverend Fred Phelps, he's based up there in Kansas. Family Values Coalition, uh, they just said the gay rights crowd. Some groups could not be reached. We, we didn't have a way to contact the Ku Klux Klan, for example. Um, uh, a couple of politically oriented groups uh, we contacted, well, they just named the president. As you can tell, some of the, uh, the ones we talked to at length were capable, were capable of picking a particular individual, but uh, others weren't. The case of the Monroe Family Values Coalition, uh, you know, they did get a little more detailed than merely identifying gay rights activists, um, but never specifically as naming a person or, or even one specific organization. How, Hannah, how specific did they get? Well, they, they were particular enough to describe a hypothetical gay rights activist who carries the HIV virus, lobbies Congress to divert research monies to AIDS, and organizes a grassroots effort to amend the Constitution to grant um, special protected status for homosexual orientation. Uh, thank you, Hannah. Thanks to both Hannah and all the women of the Ruth Circle. The Lord calls us here to a task that is by no means easy. Admonishments like turning the other cheek pose a daunting challenge to the soul. If you doubt the ease and simplicity of striking out at the problems we encounter, then just watch the evening news or read the Sunday paper. For most people, striking out is preferable to walking the extra mile. Well, in the great judgment, Jesus ups the ante further. He isn't asking us to forgive and console an enemy. 
he is asking us to do so for the enemy, the least of these, the least of these. I suppose it's only natural for us to conjure up an image of a homeless mother and child through our regular offerings and special annual offerings. We probably do find a way to indirectly touch the lives of that anonymous mother and child. But I would challenge that perception. Who truly qualifies as the least of these for our local chapter of the NAACP? A resident of the parish homeless shelter or David Duke? Most pro-lifers honestly feel the same way about Dr. Shelton, don't they? There is an abortion-performing doctor in Pensacola, Florida, so despised by national pro-life groups that a man shot and killed him last year. More recently, a similar assassination was attempted in Wichita, Kansas, the community served by one of our sister congregations. Whatever a member of the local committee may say about the least of these, being a sympathetic figure, you know, like a cancer patient or a crack baby, I think we all know who is really least among us in their eyes. It's probably Dr. Shelton. I prefer not to criticize another minister, even from a different denomination. However, I'm not particularly shocked that the notorious Reverend Fred Phelps is known throughout the heartland by gay rights groups. He pickets the funerals of AIDS victims. He writes and faxes some of the most hateful letters a grieving family could ever possibly read. I don't doubt that gay rights advocates would consider Phelps to be the least among us as well. He hasn't been bashful about pointing an accusing finger at them, so there you go. The war of words between Jews and Muslims wages even in our country. And again, it seems obvious that each group would gladly designate the other as being the least among God's creation. The example I would like to use this morning, though, comes from, it comes at the expense of the Family Values Coalition. I'm taking this example for two reasons. First, this congregation supports a big portion of their agenda. You know, so, and we've worked with a similar group over in Richland Parish, you know, even more closely. So in this manner, we can self-righteously criticize ourselves. We're really talking about ourselves here. Second, I think the actions and words of Christ have a particularly strong application in this case. Let's be honest with ourselves now. I'm not calling for a show of hands, so you don't have to worry about being particularly honest with one another. But I do challenge you to be honest with yourself. For our purposes, let's say that we have been called to visit a patient in the hospital. Is there a disease we would hope above all others is not being carried by this patient? Am I wrong? Or does AIDS change the entire tenor of a caregiving hospital visit? What if that same patient is on medical release from prison where he is serving a term for a sex crimes offense? I'm sure gay rights groups could tell stories about the stereotype we've been sold about the purported relationship between homosexuality and sex crimes. What if our mission with this AIDS-inflicted, bedridden criminal was not moral support so much as physical support? What if we were asked to feed this person? What if we were asked to change this person's clothing? You see, it's easy enough to sit in judgment of the NAACP for their struggle to forgive the racist hatred of a politician like David Duke. On the other hand, each and every one of us has a least of these in our hearts that probably would make us more uncomfortable than holding the bleeding hand of a dying AIDS patient. I've heard some people say in the course of this debate about AIDS research 
that the standards set by Jesus don't apply in this instance because Jesus wasn't dealing with AIDS in his day. Let me get this straight. Jesus, in his day, supposedly didn't encounter a horrendously fatal, communicable disease that was feared by all and believed to be inflicted predominantly upon the morally deficient. People, the Bible calls it leprosy. If AIDS patients aren't the lepers of our society, then the reason is that AIDS isn't as feared today as leprosy was in Jesus' time. Jesus healed lepers. He prayed with lepers. He forgave lepers of their sins like many of the others he encountered in his ministry. And Jesus was quick to point out that everyone who felt that people with leprosy had somehow committed a sin and were facing God's judgment for carrying the disease were wrong and were not in any position to speak on behalf of God and his judgment. Jesus was telling them that God would judge their righteousness, not based upon the love they showed for the person across the street, but for the person so lowly as to be banished from the community altogether, the least of these. As you did it to one of the least of these, so you did it to me. The same Christ who is so eager to help up sinners as unworthy of his grace as all of us are, asks only that we go and do likewise. It seems so simple, as long as a donation here or a pledge there will make the problem go away. But the Lord is asking us personally to feed, clothe, and visit. The women in this congregation have helped open our eyes to a challenge we face in evangelism. You see, the groups they interviewed consider themselves to be religious groups. It seems that those who have pledged themselves to serve the Lord have as much trouble following through as we imagine that an unbelieving world would. In our hymn today, we pledge to be one in the Spirit and to walk together and to work together with Christians to spread the Word of God. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Yet I wouldn't doubt that the challenge we've set for ourselves this morning as a congregation would be less than well received by many of our fellow Christians. I suppose that our prayer for all unity to one day be restored may have to begin with the church itself before we go out and try to save the world. As Christians, we don't always work together. Walking side by side is probably a sporadic event. Yet for the most part, the least of our brethren is a common group to us all. The Reverend Glenn Daniels was here a little more than a year ago. Now, some of you may remember his sermon. I know I do. One of the things he preached still remains strong in my memory. Brother Glenn was talking about our habit of labeling people and our strong desire to sort of separate out winners from losers. And I expected him to take the same approach that all ministers do. The judgment should be left unto the Lord. Instead, though, instead of going, judge not lest ye be judged, Glenn turned the problem around and gave us kind of an ends versus the means view of the argument. He asked us if sinners need to hear the word of the Lord. He asked us if God calls upon us to forgive. He asked us if there was a sin or a crime, you know, or you know, any individual for that matter, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is incapable of redeeming. And then he said this. I'm going to try to quote him. Let's see if I can, I can get this right. 
If we exclude sinners from the house of the Lord in response to the sins they have committed, we are casting them out of God's house without any consideration of what the will and grace of the Lord may be. Thank you, Brother Glenn. We complain about godlessness. You hear it all the time. When we talk about the breakdown of morals in our society, we talk at least as much about the lack of faith as we do about any sin in general. However, the words of the Reverend Daniels calls to my attention a great irony. Are we not, in fact, blaming the godless for their very godlessness? I think so. I think so. Lord forgive us, but I think so. Much like blaming a starving man for being hungry, or blaming a freezing man for being cold, we Christians are missing our calling by paying too much attention to the assignment of blame. When we exclude a person for being a sinner, then we create his godlessness. Every time we take a sin, say, I don't know, sodomy or adultery, and use that sin to block the sinner from the very words that will bring him salvation, we create the godlessness. Far too often, these exclusions have nothing whatsoever to do with sinning in the first place. You heard me. We have played a part in creating godless people simply because their race or their politics happen to be different. If I saw a man who was starving to death, and I wanted to do for my Lord as Jesus taught in the great judgment, then I surely would give him some food. If I saw that that same man was freezing to death from exposure, I would give him my coat and help him find some shelter. The same example applies to someone who doesn't know the Lord. What does a godless person need to cure his ill? Well, the very same thing that every sinner needs to recognize the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. People, we have lost sheep roaming the hills of our society. Worse yet, a great many of those lost sheep have been kicked out of the flock by misguided shepherds like you and me. Herders who mistakenly believed that the flock would somehow be better off without this lamb or that lamb or the other. Jesus has made his instructions to us very clear. Not only are we charged with the responsibility to seek out the lost sheep and return them to the flock at all costs, more, more, we are expected to rejoice with every success. Every time we can serve God's salvation under the least of our human brethren, we absolutely must. And as a congregation gathering in Jesus' name, we must prepare ourselves both for the challenge ahead and the celebration to come. Let us pray. That ends chapter 7, just to give you a sense of kind of where the flow of a Lenten writing experiment slash neo-surrealist story kind of goes. I want to jump to the end before I veer off the storytelling and into my actual thoughts and notes for today. I want to jump to the end, to the end notes. Now, if you hadn't already decided that this might be one of the strangest stories ever written, well, here's a thought. I've got uh, end notes on these chapters, more than more than 80 or 90 of them, as a matter of fact. The ones that apply here are specifically picking up with um, the song by Peter Schultes and the scripture readings from Ezekiel, Luke, and Matthew. Wolves, song by Stephanie Davis, um, EMI Blackwood Music, 1990, performed by Garth Brooks also in 1990. I make reference to Turning the Other Cheek, that's Matthew 5, verse 39. Glenn Daniels, oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> 
Glenn Daniels is a reference to heavy metal artist and songwriter Glenn Danzig, whose song Godless is the theme for this reference. I'm going to read the, the lyrics to Godless here in just a minute, but before I do, I may be serving myself well to go to the last end note. The judge not lest ye be judged is uh, also from the Bible, Matthew 7, verse 1. My story today is that the least of these is a critical concept, but also that the song Godless by Danzig absolutely rocks. And what I've used from the Danzig song is the concept that when Christians engage in behavior that kind of rails completely against what Jesus told us to do, when we don't respect the needs of others, when we don't reach out for the least of these, when we instead try to use certain sins or even certain behaviors as a pretext for excluding people, when we assume that we have some authority to decide who are the sheep and who are the goats and confuse our role as servants with the actual role belonging to the king himself, we create godlessness. I'm not blaming myself or anyone else for creating the original sinful behavior. But when you turn to somebody and say, you know what, you've used an illegal drug, you're out. Or you smoke cigarettes or you drink beer, you're out. When we do those sorts of things, we create the godlessness. That person still owns the responsibility for their own action. If somebody's out there you know, committing adultery, if someone's you know, doing other things which are frankly even more wrong than that, they own their own sin. But that act of exclusion is where the godless concept creeps in. Here's the lyrics to the Danzig song. Godless feeling in me night after night. Godless feeling in me born of their lies. I've taken all of this and more and that's for sure. I can't believe in all your pain. Under the draining of a Christian deity's blood, you tell your children they're insane. I couldn't take it anymore. I had to listen to my heart. I couldn't love it anymore. And so you leave me godless. I'll stop there. I don't, I don't feel like I need to go into the second verse to convey the idea. These are hard words. And probably some people may be wondering, hey, this is a Christian guy speaking a Christian message who's just read a distinctly Christian section from a short story and is actively celebrating Holy Week. Palm Sunday last week, Easter this week. What in the world does he like a group like Danzig for? Well, first, let me provide a word of caution. I'm not 100% sure I can accuse myself of liking Danzig. But I think this one song in particular from Danzig 3, How the Gods Kill, first song on the CD as a matter of fact, is frankly a song that every Christian should hear. Every Christian should hear it because whatever else you may think of Danzig, he's actually stopped and taken the time to very angrily and aggressively tell us off. And what he has to say, I think, is worth hearing. I couldn't take it anymore. I had to listen to my heart. When we take somebody who feels like the only way he can truly love is to be outside the church, when we set up a list of rules that you have to follow, when we expect a country club dress code to be obeyed before you walk in those doors, when we don't even listen to what somebody's pain and problems are because we're going to use those problems to judge them, when we decide who are the least of these and then fail to reach out to those very people as Christ commanded us, we create the godlessness. So whatever else I may think of Glenn Danzig and his band Danzig, I thank God that this one particular song came from his mind to his pen to his microphone and in that album. 
Hi, this is Will Tristrummer for those about to rock, saying that if you like to listen to three guys break it down and talk about the seminal heavy metal albums of our time, go to simplesyndicated.com. You won't find it there, but you know, we try our best. Okay, so there goes Glenn Danzig. If you were hoping that that heavy metal outburst would lead to a calming and settling, I'm about to disappoint you, because I'm still very worked up about this particular topic. I think what I'd like to do, actually, is maybe mentally pull aside a few Christian listeners and share some, again, some difficult, challenging words. I have a friend in the Bible Belt who had uh, mentioned to me the other day that he is so opposed to President Obama and Obama policies and the Obama presidency that he feels that his name must not be spoken. And that his game plan is never to say the word Obama for, I guess, the next three years or however long it takes. Could be, could be almost, almost eight years in total, depending on how the next election cycle goes. Um, and what he told me, and this is why I bristled, he told me that he views this man as being so unworthy, so nothing to him uh, as president, that, that he doesn't deserve to have his name spoken. And I thought to myself, wow, we've don't really have to work too hard together to find out who the least of these are, do we? We've pretty much narrowed the least of these as a concept, a biblical concept, all the way down to one name. We'll get to this later on in future episodes. I'm not particularly interested in voting for Republicans or Democrats, so I can't claim that anything I'm saying here is because I voted for Obama. I didn't vote for Obama, and I didn't vote against Obama. I didn't vote for McCain. I didn't vote against McCain. I ignored those two political parties altogether because I feel like they are actually the source of almost everything that is wrong in American politics today. So I'm not saying this as an Obama fan or as an Obama supporter, but I will say this. The non-Christian world, in my mind, has some means by which of understanding what we as Christians are supposed to be doing. They may not be able to articulate it. They perhaps can't quote chapter and verse. Although I would hope today that there's a lot of people who could dredge up Matthew chapter 25 in a pinch if they needed to. Because you know what? Something, whether it be conscience, whether it be the Holy Spirit in a provenient type of grace working in the hearts of those people, something tells them that something is wrong when this kind of anger and hatred and vitriol comes out of our churches and into our congregations. Something is very wrong there. And I personally am not the least bit interested in cutting somebody from the Bible Belt some slack because it's a Bible Belt perspective. I think we all need to be graded on the same scale here. So when you, in a least of these kind of way, point to an individual and say, you are nothing, guess what? You've just called Christ nothing. Because Jesus said that whatever we do to the least of these, we did to him. If you love him, if you care about him, if you try to bridge the gaps between you, if you make sure that that person is protected and safe, if you do everything in your power to get this person, even if this person is a horrible human being, if you do everything in your power to protect that individual from the harm that his horrible behavior is going to lead him to inevitably, in hopes that he may live and survive to hear the truth on another day, if you do those things right, you're fulfilling the gospel message. But if instead you look at that person and say, you're worthless, you're nothing to me. I'm investing nothing in you. I'm not even willing to speak your name publicly. You are saying that Christ is worthless. Christ is meaningless. Christ is nothing 
or at the very least nothing to you, you are preaching a gospel that God does not exist. Now, let me say this again. I want to lay it all on the line. When you turn to somebody that you feel is the least of these and you treat that person as if he or she does not exist, Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 is telling you that you are saying he doesn't exist either. What you do for the least of these you have done for me. If you deny my existence to the world, then you're the source of the godlessness. I've often said that, you know, I don't think Gandhi got it wrong when Gandhi said, hey, I love your Christ. It's your Christians I have trouble with. He even went so far as to say, hey, the issue with Christianity is that the Christians don't look anything like what Christ asks them to be. Because Christ tells us that the person that we find to be the least of these in our heart of hearts is the person that we have got to turn that other cheek for, to walk that other mile for, to find not just the coat off our back, but the shirt off our back too. We have got to find a way to give the love of Christ in that precise situation. Now, I may have people listening to me right now who've developed in their head a million and one excuses why their disappointment, anger, and hatred toward Barack Obama has nothing to do with the least of these that he's not the worst. They actually have it in for somebody even more. He's not their biggest disappointment. They're a lot more disappointed in somebody else. You know what? I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. The bottom line is the world is paying attention to whether we practice what we preach. Well, we don't get to pick what we preach unless you're going to engage in some open form of heresy. What we preach is what the Bible says, and the Bible says what you do for the least of these is what you do for me. And worse, the great judgment is not going to fall on that person who is sick or in prison or homeless who can't take care of himself. The great judgment is going to fall on those of us who could have done something to help and chose not to. If you really think that there's a person in your society, whether that's a powerful political leader or whether that's somebody who is, you know, completely at the bottom of their well, at the end of their rope, what you do in response to that individual that you've identified as being the least says it all about whether or not you've got a true living faith in your heart or whether you're simply wrapping up your political ideology in the most popular religion available to you in this country. I won't go into the political expediency angle right now, though. That strikes me as a different question for a different day. Well, based on the things that I've shared so far today, you might anticipate that Glenn Danzig would be a potential candidate for a different drummer. I'm not feeling it. Instead, I want to cite one of the other persons that I mentioned in that short story, Stephanie Davis. And I know you got your reasons for each and everything you do. But tonight outside my window, there's a lonesome morning for the And I just can't keep from thinking. About the ones the wolves pulled out. 
Stephanie Davis comes to us perhaps as a musician. I'm going to give her credit for that. She's released at least five albums, most of them independently. But she really, truly comes to us as a songwriter. Um, some of her songs you may have heard if you listen to a lot of country music. Garth Brooks released singles for the songs We Shall Be Free and Learning to Live Again. She's also written songs recorded by Shelby Lynn, Waylon Jennings, and Martina McBride. But a few years ago, she left Nashville and decided to kind of go back to where she was born. And now, rather than being a country songwriter from Tennessee, she's a country songwriter from Montana. The songs I'm going to cite from her probably won't be memorable to you as country music singles. I'm going to pick two, specifically from the songs that she wrote when she was collaborating with Garth Brooks, because these two are songs that are deeply meaningful to me. One of them I used in the short story. It's from the Garth Brooks CD, No Fences, and it's called Wolves. Stephanie Davis weaves a beautiful story, well told, that in my mind reads like a prayer. When I hear that song, I imagine that every single word from every single verse and chorus is simply one rancher saying a prayer. It starts off with him out in the pasture in January, um, trying to keep the cattle together, trying to keep the cattle alive, safe from the snow, but more importantly, safe from the wolves. And uh, it, it has a haunting sort of a refrain to it about um, hearing um, the wolves pull one down. Then it goes into a verse about another farm family nearby who comes to tell him, presumably later that day, maybe later that week, that the uh, bank is foreclosed, they're losing the farm, and they're having to move away to the city to start their life over again. And he promises the next time he's in town that he'll check on him, he'll go visit, he'll make sure they're okay, and uh, that you know he's, he's thinking about him, that this is on his mind. In fact, his thoughts about his cattle and the wolves spring back into the song as he's thinking now about the ranch family, the farm family, and the wolves. So a beautiful song that finishes actually with him, you know, openly praying. The other song from uh, the collaborations of Garth Brooks and Stephanie Davis that means a lot to me is a Christmas song called The Gift. And when I first heard it, it just didn't even occur to me that this song could be uh, a relatively new song. It seemed to have a great old world flavor to it, a certain... Um, Sense, uh, a certain sense of authenticity to it, and I was really, really taken. It starts off with a poor orphan girl who, on her way to market, finds a, a bird that's broken its wing. And uh, she spends you know, what little money she has to buy a really kind of a makeshift uh, cage, which she fixes up, and she starts taking care of the bird. Now, the middle verses, Now, the Christmas Eve service was coming, and the church shone with tinsel and light. And all of the town folk brought presents to lay by the manger that night. There were diamonds and incense and perfumes in packages fit for a king. But for one ragged bird in a small cage, Maria had nothing to bring. That's pretty much the setup. And, you know, to me, it's a song that I frankly, I'm even getting choked up about it now. Then a voice spoke to her through the darkness. If the bird in the cage is your offering Open the door, let me see Though she trembled, she did as he asked her And out of the cage the bird flew Soaring Whether you ever hear the Garth Brooks recording of this song from Beyond the Season or if you go to www.stephaniedavis.net and pick up her Christmas album, 
um, and hear the songwriter singing her own her own words. To me, the, the number one thing is regardless of who's playing the instruments, regardless of whether the voice doing the singing is male or female, it's an incredibly beautifully crafted song. And I've just been struck by this woman's lyrics all along. Now, if you heard all of the Garth Brooks albums when they came out originally, no one could fault you if you had no idea who Stephanie Davis even is. The reality of country music recording is that in the country music world, the performer is still the face of that particular song. And one of the things that country does that I think yeah, you almost have to make peace with if you're going to listen to country music is you have to accept the fact that it's not truly a singer-songwriter kind of genre. You're going to find a lot of cases where you have to accept the fact that the music that you like, the albums that you pick up, may often be from artists who don't do any of their own songwriting. And for that reason, whenever I pick up a country album and I find that I like what I'm hearing, I will do a little bit of digging just to kind of get a sense of, well, who who's who's the voice behind these songs? We hear the voice in front of the songs. And, and I don't want to, in any way downplay the importance of song styling and song interpretation but sometimes it's nice to know who's doing the writing so my different drummer this week stephanie davis she's a singer she's a musician but i'm calling her out as a songwriter she's written at least two of the most beautiful inspirational country songs i have ever heard and one of those songs was a driving force behind the story i shared today called the least of these Thanks for listening to Inappropriate Conversations. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, the website, with show notes, is inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. No W's in front of that. Just inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. You also can email me. I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening.